Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for tuning into episode 64 of the podcast. And we've got plenty to speak about this week. You probably might even guess, well, you know by now because you've read the title of the podcast. Uh, but we're going to talk about the what's you know what's why is everyone talking about Chinese property developer Evergrande? Why is that on everyone's lips? What's the impact overall in markets? How is that affecting us here in Australia? So we're going to get into that. It's also dividend season, so I thought I might do a bit of a chat about what that is and what that means, and maybe a bit of a rehash on what dividends are and what that might mean for you as investors. And we'll sort of do that towards the end of the podcast. But I won't waste any time. Let's jump into it and we'll talk about what the markets did, uh, I guess, over the last week or so. So I'm recording this on Wednesday, the 22nd of September. So yeah, potentially by the time you listen to it, it's a couple days old. But uh, so last week, the week prior, the ASX was pretty flat. There's a bit of an update as kind of looks like it's going to end up down this week. Uh, last week, the S&P 500 was down about half a percent and the Nasdaq was kind of the same, although the uh, it was also down just around about half a percent. So it's kind of average across all uh, markets there. But I thought I'd zoom out also. So so since the end of August, uh, sort of the start of September, end of August, the Australian market or specifically the ASX 200 is down about 3.5%. Uh, potentially, if judging by how the market's going this week, it might be down a little bit more by that by the end of this week. And But if you zoom out sort of to get a bigger perspective, so you zoom out to year to date, the ASX 200 is actually up still, it's up about 8.5%. You take that kind of the same perspective and move it over to the US markets, the NASDAQ is up about 15.5% for the year so far, and the S&P 500 up about 17.5%. So always kind of good to reality check and keep those perspectives in mind, especially when you're going through periods of market jitters and uh, media headlines about you know, dire events happening here or overseas in other countries that might impact us. Not that it isn't important, I think, to you know, be aware of those things and you know, be conscious of those things. But uh, hey, that's probably why you tune into this podcast uh, to learn about some of this stuff. And that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to talk about this fall of a Chinese property developer, Evergrande, and why this event is bothering our markets and what it's kind of linking is to Australia and the, and the fall of the iron ore price lately, which has been quite dramatic. And like I said at the top, we'll also touch on dividends. But let's start with Evergrande. Easily the name on the top of all finance news over the last few days, especially. You might have heard of it. You might already know a little bit about the saga already. Uh, maybe you haven't. Maybe you've noticed your portfolio has had a bit of a red time uh, this week, uh, which has been the case over the last few days, uh, especially specific stocks that are tied to maybe the Chinese market or Chinese economic growth. Uh, additionally, those stocks that have been tied to the iron ore price have had a bit of a bad run lately. Now, a fall in stock prices uh, hasn't just hit our market here in Australia. Equally, we've seen uh, the US indices uh, earlier this week fall, uh, major major sort of Asian equity markets such as in Japan and Hong Kong fall. Uh, at the start of the week, for example, the Hong Kong the Hong Kong's benchmark stock index 
it was at the lowest point that it's been in 12 months to, to give you an idea. And part of the reason uh, it has spooked markets, not just in China itself, this, this issue with Evergrande, and not just the immediate influence circle uh, like, like a city like Hong Kong, but also, say, Australia and the US is this general worry and concern about uh, Evergrande and also the, the wider implications of this event and what, and what would potentially unfold if this company was to collapse and default on its debt. But maybe the best spot to start is on who this company is exactly. And we'll start with some of the basics. So Evergrande, or rather Evergrande Group, it's a Chinese property development company, so a property developer. And I'll pause there slightly because some people might put their hand up and say, yeah, 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 but it's actually a little bit more than that. And yes, so I understand that Evergrande Group is is technically more than just a property developer. Like a lot of large conglomerates, they um, had started to you know, put their finger in other pies, so to speak. There's another bunch of other ventures that fall under the company. There's an electric car business, you know, funnily has not actually sold. It's not actually at a stage where it's selling any electric cars at this stage. Uh, they've got a technology firm that sits under the business. They have a theme park called Evergrande Fairyland. They also own a football team in the Chinese Super League. So the equivalent of like the the Chinese version of like a Premier League or our Hyundai A-League here in, in Australia. But really at the, the heart of this Evergrande is a property developer. That's their, that's their main thing. And it's it's one of the largest in China and, and in the world. Now, Evergrande was started out in the mid-90s by a gentleman named Hoi Kayan. It wasn't actually until later into 2009 that the company actually went public and listed on the equity markets there in China well, the company, sorry, the company actually trades on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And if you go look that up, um, you'll see that its share price has been completely battered over the past year. And that's due to this growing, growing, and obviously this week, especially escalated concerns of its ability to make debt payments, uh, refinance the existing debt that it has. And as, as of the day I'm actually recording this, so again, 22nd of September, the share price for Evergrande is down about 85% year to date. So, so if you've say you put $100 in at the start of the year to this company, you, you've lost about 85% of your money so far. And you might ask, you know, how did we or how did Evergrande get here exactly? Is this purely a story of just complete mismanagement of a single company, like one bag egg? Is there a broader concern amongst you know, China's economy or other companies that are similar to Evergrande. And we'll return to sort of the company stuff in a moment, but let's kind of zoom out and examine China and the property market in China at a macro level. So concern about uh, growing debt levels in these property development companies, a booming house market in China, you know, these are not new concerns in this country. You know, even um, just a few years ago, the leader of the uh, Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, the leader of the country, he actually addressed this particular instance and this particular problem. Uh, he said, quote, houses are built to be inhabited in, not for speculation, uh, due to his concern that, you know, housing should be available and affordable for all citizens. And uh, he was expressing concern for just like the rampant house price property growth that was going on. In China, so again, this is not a new uh, development, I guess. Uh, it's been kind of going on for 
anyway, in terms of like a booming house market in China, it's been going on for the last couple of decades. You can tie much of that back to just the way that the country, China, has changed over such a short period of time, going from like a lot of people that basically lived in what would be deemed or uh, leveled as poverty uh, and, and people living in very rural, remote areas and farming areas to moving to cities and you know living in huge urban infrastructures uh, centers and, and across you know and that kind of shift has just taken place across such like a short time period. Uh, so no doubt a, a bit of a shock to the system. So there's this concern of growing debt levels, you know, a booming property market that's become or increasingly becoming unaffordable, especially for the younger population in China. And sure, that might be good for some Chinese citizens, uh, but it left left a lot of people behind in their uh, own ability to purchase a home. And under all this concern, and and the, and China has tried to combat this uh, many times, but there was a there was sort of like a key policy initiated in 2020. It's not that long ago, just last year. It's called the three red lines or three red lines policy. And the three red lines impose criteria on property developers themselves, which if not met by those companies can place limits on how much debt they can grow annually or how much new debt that they can create. Now, we'll go to what the three red lines are in just a sec. Property developers using leverage, property developers borrowing, that's that's not like something that's unique to China. They do it all over the world. Uh, they do that because they want to buy up you know, swaths of land. They want to build up whatever it is, houses, townhouses, apartments, and then obviously sell that off. So they, they, they use leverage to help just fuel that growth for them. Now, the three red lines policies that China implemented, now specifically, so firstly, a property development company must have a liability to asset ratio of less than 70%. So the ratio of liabilities to assets under their book of less than 70%. Uh, number two, they must have a net gearing ratio of less than 100%. And number three, they must have cash to short-term debt ratio of more than one times. So that, that last bit implying that a company have, must have cash reserves that are more than one times greater than the sum of their short-term debt. So that's debt falling due for payment in the short term. Now, it doesn't... I don't think it really matters so much if you don't get the intricacies of what exactly those limits and those three red lines mean. I mean, all you really need to know is that they're put there to put a ceiling and put a cap on, I guess, some of the riskiness that some of these companies might be taking in terms of the amount of debt they're on their, on their books uh, relative to the amount of assets and the amount of cash that they hold. And also, if they're putting like a cap and a bit of a ceiling on these companies, it might also help the Chinese government curb how much they're growing and try and slow down uh, the, the booming property market. But all you really need to know is that breaching these, so breaching these three red lines, especially if you breach multiple red lines, so that, uh, you know all three of them, for example, that can limit the allowable growth in debt that a company can undertake. So a, a really good one, to, I guess a report to refer to is uh, from UBS. It was actually posted in January this year. So if you Google maybe UBS, uh, it's titled China's Three Red Lines. It's probably the, the easiest explanation of exactly what those policy crackdowns mean. It's quite simple and easy to read. Uh, and they have like quite a handy color-coded chart that sort of speaks to why, what exactly these breaches are and what the three red lines are and what happens if you breach them. So the color codes, you've got green. That means, as you can imagine, you're all good to go. You've had no breaches. Makes sense. If you're in the green, you're allowed to grow debt annually 
uh, by 15%. So that's where you want to be as a company. Now, yellow means you've had one breach. You've breached one of the three red lines. Okay, not so bad, but uh, not exactly where you want to be, but you can still grow some debt, so you can grow by 10%. Third is orange. You've had two breaches out of the three. Puts a 5% cap on annual debt growth. And the lucky last, the naughty corner, red, you've had three breaches. You cannot grow any debt at all, and you're locked out from doing that. And if you haven't guessed already, that's where Evergrande finds itself. So being in the naughty corner as Evergrande is in regards to these three-line policies, of course, even if, you know, just as a business, it's bad for them because if they're not able to you know, grow their debt levels annually, they can't, you know, go in and buy more land and plan more future developments, you know, keep the ball rolling, so to speak. And that, you know, that kind of feeds into partly what's been the problem in China in that uh, local and regional areas have sold land uh, to these kind of developers like an Evergrande for quite high prices. Obviously, then the developer still wants to make a profit on top. So when they've built and sell their apartments, they're selling it for quite high prices. Uh, but it affects their ability to keep growing and, and keep the ball rolling. And I guess in that kind of sense, it also can be a moment where the house of cards finally becomes realized and things start to get quite wobbly if you're not able to keep growing your debt and, and refinancing. And exactly how wobbly that is. So as reported uh, by The Economist on the 18th of September, so only just a few days ago, the company at the moment, Evergrande, has debts of around $300 billion. And they state that it makes it the most indebted property developer group in the entire world. Uh, a great little uh, newsletter to subscribe to is from a Bloomberg writer, uh, Matt Levine. Uh, he does like a newsletter called Money Stuff. Uh, he points to a couple other things. So he said, China's Evergrande Group, it owes 1.6 million apartments to people in China who have actually put down cash deposits already and might have trouble actually delivering those apartments to them. So 1.6 million apartments it's it's behind on. It also owes billions, again, uh, from Matt Levine, it also owes billions of dollars in cash to people who have bought wealth management products. Uh, and he says in brackets, retail debt instruments. And it will have trouble paying them to the point that it is offered to actually give them apartments instead of money. He goes on to uh, point out that it seems a bit uh, silly to give apartments for money when there's people who need apartments. And why don't you give the apartments to the people who need apartments and then get the money from that to then give to the people with the wealth products that want just a return. He, he actually points out a, an interesting thing. He said talks about these wealth management products that... So the, and the story with these is these were often sold by Evergrande employees and were often sold out of Evergrande buildings, like buildings that they bought. So people who had not only just bought into an apartment, you know, off the plan with this company for, um, you know, maybe delivery in a year's time or whatever it is, they're going to get an apartment. They'd also buy into these wealth management products uh, that would offer them you know, a return on their invested money because... Uh, this is more ways for Evergreen to bring cash into the door to help sort of fuel their growth. And Matt Levine in his newsletter the other day pointed out, so these products were simultaneously, number one, categorized as fixed income products suitable for conservative investors seeking steady returns. So conservative investors seeking steady returns. And then number two, sold with 11% yields. <laughs> so just, a, just as a bit of general advice for everyone out there, uh, if you're ever listening to someone pitch an investment product to you or some type of investment and they're telling you just how safe, conservative 
and this is you know for people wanting steady returns and this is for someone who don't want a lot of volatility and risk and at the same time they're saying oh and you're going to get 11% return on it you know that should just be immediate alarm bells ringing because 11% yield is not a conservative investment return and what was happening this week on the markets was Thursday was this big day where they had a bunch of interest payments uh, due on bonds. Uh, and and basically the market and and all these people were watching because they didn't know whether they were going to even be, be pay it. And, and so this is the part of this kind of this story is that it's very much an ongoing story. So maybe some of the stuff that I say is going to become outdated or things will change or things might get worse. Who knows? It's, it's an interesting one to watch over the coming weeks and months. You know, one thing I'm hearing and, and listening to is you, you'll see a lot of people come on to uh, news programs and say, oh, this is just something that's going to be contained in China, so don't worry about it. It's not going to be anything more than that. Interestingly, there are funds or banks that are not based in China that are exposed to this. Uh, for example, there was a report from uh, Reuters early in the week and companies like BlackRock, uh, investment banks like HSBC and UBS, they're not Chinese firms. They uh, they are some of the owners of some of the bonds or some of the debt in this Chinese real estate developer Evergrande. And I'm just actually jumping in here from the future. <laughs> so I recorded most of this podcast on Wednesday, but I actually have done doing a little bit of cleaning up uh, towards the end of the week. And at the moment, the current news is, this is part of the problem with the story, like it's constantly changing. So it's hard to kind of get like a, a solid grip on what exactly is occurring because uh, it seems to just be moving every time I look at the news. But the moment the, that people have been looking forward forward at this week was Thursday because they, uh, Evergrande had a bunch of um, payments due. Now, Evergrande has basically been given a 30-day grace period to make these payments. But what interestingly is what is not clear is if the Chinese government is going to help them, whether it's completely save them, whether it's helped them a little bit. It, you know, these this debt that most of their debt that they have is in Chinese currency, so the government is in a position to help them. But you remember that this is a company that has breached all three of these uh, three red lines policies that we talked about a bit earlier. So on the one hand, the, the, the party there and Xi Jinping is would be aware that there are millions of citizens that are impacted by this company. Yeah, not just in wealth products that you know, are potentially going to blow up and people are not going to get the return on them that are promised, but just think about just normal homeowners or people aspiring to own a home who are now wondering whether they're even going to get an apartment or, or a home um, and if they're going to get their deposit back uh, that they put down uh, for these apartments. So there's, a, there's like a political side to this in terms of you know, the, the impact on the actual everyday innocent people caught up in this problem. On the other, t on the other hand, this is, you know, the, there are plenty of property developers and Evergrande is not one of the only Chinese property developers that are in some kind of trouble due to some of these new measures that are trying to put a cap on the amount of debt growth and punishing those companies who are not meeting those three red line policies. You know, the, on the other hand, the, gov the government is not going to want to just put down all these policies and say, look, we don't want you to step over these lines. And then a company comes along like Evergrande and breaks all the rules. And then the CCP comes in and just bails them out because then it, what, what does that just set a precedent where, okay, well, even if we do mess up, 
uh, will just get bailed out. I guess that's kind of what happened in the GFC. But but I, I, it's kind of hard to see whether Xi Jinping's party would even do that because there might be there might be wanting to have a bit of punishment here for this company uh, in terms of what they've been doing. Again, there's so much speculation on this because of the fact that you know information that comes out is vague from uh, this company and from China around what they're going to do about this uh, particular crisis. And that's kind of what spooked markets because it hasn't been clear to markets exactly what they're going to do. I'm not sure. So like, for example, I saw Ray Dalio uh, from of Bridgewater Associates on TV saying, you know, it's not a contagion. It's not going to be a problem. It can be contained. On the other hand, though, there are, like I mentioned, there are banks, you know, that do and or and investment firms that do hold exposure to this particular property firm. And the issue with Evergreen is not, you know, it's not... Uh, singled on a particular company, it, it is an issue more broadly in China altogether with property development firms. Now, finally, it's worth touching on the issue around the price of iron ore lately and the impact that this developing situation regarding Evergrande Group has on the Australian market because that's maybe where people are a bit confused exactly why. So firstly to iron ore, now you can't, it's not like iron ore price is targeted or linked directly back to the the fortunes of this one company, but it, it relates into the situation overall. As we've talked about, China has very clearly wanted to curb uh, what's been pretty crazy property market for people over there and you know rising um, unaffordability, especially among young Chinese people uh, wanting to buy their first home. You know, authorities have put in efforts to actually curb the amount of steel that's being produced there because you know when we make out when you know Australian mining companies are digging up iron they're sending it over to China to they're creating steel there that's of course going into massive infrastructure development like the kind of property development that an Evergreen would do now also with the policies like the, the three red lines that we talked about that's again trying to curb the amount of growth in these property development companies uh, which in turn should have an effect on curbing the amount of growth in the property market, which should hopefully stabilize, I guess the theory being, stabilize prices. Also, there were some indicators that came out that showed that you know, perhaps things started to slow down in the property market there. For example, year on year, so this was just in August, uh, home sales in China were down 20% uh, year on year, so compared to the year prior. And then now you've got this problem with this Evergreen, this huge property developer, your number two property developer in the country, so one of the biggest. It's having financial problems, and yeah, there's potentially it goes bust. What this is painting is a picture of okay, well, maybe China is going to have a slowdown in not only just development and infrastructure and property, but just overall economic growth. And so what's happened is the iron ore price has basically more or less gone into a bit of a free fall since about July. You know, it's been on a great run and for shareholders in companies like on the Australian market like Fortescue Metal, you've just been laughing for quite a long time now. You know, at the start of this year, this calendar year, it is, well, sort of towards the end of last year, leading into the start of this calendar year, it, the iron ore prices started to ramp up, especially across November, December. At the start of this year, it was around the $150 uh, 150 US dollars a ton mark. It continued to climb towards the middle of the year, uh, even getting as high over as 220 US dollars a ton. It had a bit of a fall, 
it's sort of held steady for a little while, cross into July, around there, just over the two hundred dollar mark, and then, you know, when it's when this kind of stuff starts to become a little bit clearer, especially around data from uh, construction and home sales in China, you know, seeing these companies like Evergreen running into trouble, you know, really from end of July, it's just been falling. Now, so remember, it's, it was closer to around two hundred twenty dollars. Now the iron ore price is actually closer to about a hundred dollars. So that's a, that's a massive fall in price, and that price is based on the expectations of slower and lower growth output in China moving ahead, and that's kind of where it seems it's going to affect and impact Australia the most. So not that there's say a company in Australia that's you know, directly tied to Evergreen and this is going to be some kind of contagion problem into the financial markets here. It's it's more where it's going to impact is A, this iron ore price, given the role that iron ore has in our overall economy and given that most of the exports that we do of iron ore specifically come to China. So if China is slowing down or you know, reducing the amount that they're taking in, that's going to affect those companies. It's also going to affect the actual government because Treasury, when it reviews uh, its forecast, it's sort of basing around particular iron ore prices and how much tax it can bring in based on the amount of uh, based on the price of iron ore and its expectations over the coming twelve months. So if there's a reduction in the amount that our miners can export, that can actually hurt uh, the government's coffers. So yeah, a slowdown in China can have pretty far-reaching consequences. So it's not it's not just about the, the specific fortunes of a of a company there, but more the overall economic growth and prospects of the economy there. And that leads us to where we are today, which is watching this situation unfold and asking what will China do about Evergrande? Will it step in to help the company? Will it let Evergrande fail to serve as an example to the rest of the property sector? And more importantly, what will happen to the millions of innocents who were promised homes and investment products from this company who now may never be able to deliver on them? That is the million dollar question, or in the case of Evergrande, the $300 billion question. I said at the top of the show that we're going to touch on dividend season and we are in the thick of it right now in the Australian market, actually pretty much this week ending and also next week, uh, kind of like the two big major weeks where most of uh, the dividends from uh, dividend paying companies are actually being paid out. So you might uh, see a little bit of cash in your account, uh, maybe some extra shares if you're on a dividend reinvestment program. But I got this idea because I, I read an interesting report. This one came from Comsec, so you can jump on their website and have a look at it. It's called Surge in Dividends, over $41 billion to be paid. Uh, they say that, well, say yeah, $41 billion in dividends will be paid over the next few weeks or have started to at least be paid. And compared to, say, where we were last year, so the August 2020 reporting season, it was $21.6 billion that was paid. Of course, we're talking, we're comparing back to the kind of the start slash middle, but kind of when like COVID began and companies were a lot more nervous and unsure about exactly what the future was going to hold. And um, as we know, many companies actually stopped paying dividends, especially those in heavily affected sectors like the travel sector and 
have not gone actually back to paying dividends yet. Uh, but it, even companies like banks and stuff really really cut back on the amount of cash that they were paying out. And some of that has to do with uh, APRA requirements on them to do that. But we seem to be bouncing back. They had an interesting graph in this report from Comsec showing uh, the proportion of ASX 200 companies that are lifting or maintaining their dividends. And they show that over the past, going back to about 2010. And they have a, a line that's like the average. So the average amount of companies that either lift or maintain their dividends. And so last year, of course, that fell quite significantly uh, because companies were cutting their dividends or not paying them at all. Uh, but that now this current uh, end of financial year season, and so in 2021, that has now bounced back to basically be on par with the average over the last 10 years. And that's important because the Australian market is is very much uh, uh, focused around that kind of yield style investment. So investing in companies that will pay a yield out to you. And some of the companies that kind of ties back to the whole iron ore price, the ones that have just had a huge windfall from this uh, extremely expensive iron ore price. So the, the likes of a Rio Tinto, Fortescue Metals, BHP, they've all very much enjoyed a pretty good year and their dividends really show it. So I was looking into the Fortescue Metals Group dividend. So they are paying a dividend of $2.11 per share. And if you add in what they paid in the interim part, so at the start of the year, so for the full financial year, they paid $3.58 per share, which is a boost of about 100%. Uh, a little bit over 100% more than what it did in the final financial year prior. Uh, BHP, for example, they're paying a $2.71 per share dividend, and that brings them up to about $3.70 uh, for the whole financial year that they've paid out. So $3.70 for this financial year just ended. As an example, the previous financial year, they paid out $1.75. So really, the, the miners have been the standout uh just based purely really on commodity prices and their ability to keep production levels or production expenses stable while taking advantage of rising commodity prices like the iron ore price. Now, of course, you can't expect the party to continue on. I think if you're an investor in those companies, you're watching the iron ore price right now with a little bit of horror as it's sunk back down, but it's still at a decent price you know, historically. Uh, at the moment, it's just fallen from um, quite a high point that it's been. Now, for the uninitiated with dividends, maybe this is your first time you're receiving because you you could be invested in one of these companies directly, like you know some dividend payers like West Farmers, uh, CSL pay dividends. Some of the, the banks like Commonwealth Bank, Westpac, ANZ, NAB, they all pay dividends and are pretty stable and consistent in doing so. If it's your first time, you generally have the choice. Uh, to actually receive that as a cash payment into your account, which then you can do whatever you want with it, or you can actually opt in for some companies have what's called a dividend reinvestment plan or DRP. And what that does, it takes the money that this company has paid out and actually just buys up more shares with that money or as much as it possibly can. If it can't buy another share, like maybe you have quite a small holding, it'll just hold on to that and combine it with the next dividend to hopefully buy you a share in that company. Now, the important thing to remember Again, this is just general advice. So, of course, speak to your accountant about specifics to you. But this is income, right? So you do have to report this when you do your tax return. So you can't just treat this as free money uh, and go down to the pub. Well, you can. You can definitely go do that. But you do have to note this as income that you've received because effectively this is an investment that you've made 
And as a shareholder, you're participating in the profits of these companies and then that company's paying it back in the form of dividends to you. You know, sometimes uh, well, people will say, well, should I get it paid to me? Should I opt into the dividend reinvestment plan? I tend to think that if you're in it for a long term, the DRP is a, is a good way to go. It also kind of depends on what you want to do with the money. So if you want the money because you've got another investment idea, like maybe you want to put that money instead of buying, maybe so maybe you've got a stock where it's in your portfolio where it's taking up quite a bit of space. So it represents quite a large portion of your overall portfolio. Maybe you actually want to take the income that you've received from that particular stock and invest it in a completely di different company to help you diversify your portfolio. And that would be a pretty sensible way to go about it in my eyes. You don't always have to just look at DRP. Uh, but if you're in a position for the long term, like even if you're invested in, say, an exchange traded fund that pays out income and you can invest it into more ETFs, a DRP is a very sensible way to go about it because, yes, you still have to note down from a tax point of view that you're receiving this income, but at least it's just going into more shares. It kind of teaches you to forget about it and you're not going to spend that money or waste it on things that you don't need. And it kind of just builds up a bit of a habit for you I suppose, of reinvesting that money that you've received from your initial investment. And over time, so well, so over like the course of a couple of years, that's not going to show that much, but really it starts to kick into gear once you're looking at over a long-term horizon. So that's a little bit about dividends. So over the next, over, over the week that just ended or over the next week, you might be receiving it depending on the companies that you're owning. If you're getting it as cash, maybe you want to revisit or look into the idea of doing a DRP. If you want to keep it as cash because you want to put it into another shares, then uh, go to town, I suppose. But that is it for the Market Pulse podcast for this episode. You have been listening to episode 64. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked the little segment we did about Evergrande at the start of this podcast, or for most of this podcast, really, and you've got a friend that wants to understand it a little bit better, send them the link to this podcast and they can listen in about Evergrande and what's happening in China. But other than that, I hope you have a great rest of your week. If you want to send any questions into the show, you can. You can always do that at marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. But I will see you in the next episode. Cheers.